Good morning, Jubilee. We find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes again, chapter 5, verses 10 through 6, chapter 6, verse 9. And what I want to do is pray one more time, and we'll walk through the text as I preach the sermon. So if you could pray with me one more time and ask for the Lord's help. Father, my heart this morning is zealous for two things. One, for you to be exalted through the preaching of your word. So be magnified today, Father. We are here to sit and hear from the word of God. So be exalted today, Father, by your preached word. Would it be like honey on our lips, and would you be exalted in our satisfaction on it? And my second request is, Father, that as you are exalted in your word, would we be a people that is so satisfied in Christ? Would you satisfy us this morning with your son? And, oh, Father, will we be a people that live out what it means to be satisfied? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last October, the Powerball jackpot reached an all-time high of $1.6 billion. It's billion with a B. That sum is larger than all of the GDP of the small African country of Gambia. The odds of winning that Powerball last year was 1 in 292.2 million. In fact, if you were at that time expecting a newborn, your odds of naturally having five children were more likely to happen at a 1 in a 55 million chance. In other words, you were more than likely, five times so, to have quintuplets than hitting that jackpot. The irrationality of these odds are beyond insane. And yet, 635,103,137 people spend money to purchase a chance to change their lives on a generation scale, generational scale. If you bought a ticket, just keep looking at me. Nobody would even know. Why did so many people spend that type of money, this hard-earned money, on such an impossible chance? And for those who didn't purchase a ticket, why did they at least consider it? And for those who didn't consider it, the rest of it, why did they at least dream about what it would be, what it would be to win $1.6 billion? Well, I can only answer for myself because I know what my heart would do. My heart would have considered the sheer possibilities that come with having this type of money at my disposal. Do you know what I can do with $1.6 billion? My heart would get absolutely lost in the sea of opportunities and lost in the sea of things that can happen with that type of money. Generations of my family would be good for a long time, long time. 
The question would no longer be, where will we find space for all the children at Jubilee? No, the question would turn around and be, where can we find some more children for all this space that we have? I would buy a house for my books. <laughs> and then come to myself and say, self, please make a vow not to waste this money. My heart would be tempted to rest in the protection that money affords. And hopefully at some point, my, my heart would have to wrestle with the fact that at the root of why I may want 1.6 billion, the, the root, the very source of why I might want 1.6 billion dollars is because at some level, my heart is tempted to love money and to love what it affords. How many of y'all know that we have a complicated relationship with money? We know 1 Timothy 6, we know it well, right? Money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? No, not money. The what? The love. The love. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We know this. This is not brand new to us. We know that we aren't to love money. And yet, in various chapters of our lives and in various ways, many unseen to the outside world, we wrestle with the love of money. We wrestle with loving what it can do for us. The preacher this morning still intends on knocking down all of the ways that we may find meaning and satisfaction and purpose and significance other the sun. And his eyes are now set on the topic that every heart in this room has to deal with. And that is the topic of money and wealth. He goes right to the heart of the matter by dealing with the heart of the matter, which is love. He speaks about our loves because he understands that we will pursue what we love. That's what we do. We pursue the objects of our love. It's not even hard to do so. And if the, the object of our love is wealth or is money, the preacher this morning warns us that this pursuit will be in vain. This pursuit will be in vain because there is a greater pursuit to go after than money, wealth, and possessions. And since there's a greater pursuit to go after, that must mean that there is a greater object of our love besides money, wealth, and possessions. Now turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, a little louder, neighbor, don't play yourself this morning. Don't play yourself this morning, right? You may hear us talking about love and wealth, and you may be tempted to think this at this particular point. You, you may say in your heart, I'm not a wealthy individual. I'm not, I don't have a lot of money or a lot of possessions. I don't, that's not me. And therefore, I don't have a problem with loving money because I don't have any money. Meaning, in your words, you don't have as much as you would like. Listen carefully to the words of Paul Tripp concerning this. The root system of the love of money runs deeper and wider 
through the soul of the human heart than we tend to think. And because this is the case, money is a significant theme in all of the scriptures. I want you to let this sink in for a second. Jesus spoke about money more than he talked about heaven and earth. He talked about money more than he talked about heaven and earth. There are 10,000 ways that the human heart can love wealth all the way from the spendthrift whose money just burns holes in his pockets all the way to the frugal who loves her money in a different way. The temptation to pursue wealth is more insidious in our hearts than we would like to admit. So this morning, I'm thankful I'm thankful for the preacher of Ecclesiastes because he's going to teach us some things here. So what's the main idea of our text? The main idea is this. It's what he wants us to walk away with. Instead of pursuing wealth, we are to pursue joy in God's daily gifts. Instead of pursuing wealth, we are to pursue joy in God's daily gifts. Gifts. I want you to consider this main idea underneath three headings this morning. A warning, two reflections, and an application. Let's consider a warning first. How many of y'all know that warning signs are for our benefit? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Warning signs are for our benefit. Consider the warning sign of a stroke. If you're aware of these warning signs, you actually can save somebody's life. Consider the warning signs at an animal exhibit. YouTube is littered with videos of people who have foolishly ignored these warning signs. The preacher gives us a warning here that our hearts at times would rather just ignore. It's this. Those who love and pursue wealth will come up empty. That's our warning sign. Those who love and those who pursue wealth will come up empty. Now remember that the heart pursues what it loves. So look at verse number one. Ecclesiastes 5, not verse number one, I'm sorry. Verse number, give me one second. Ecclesiastes 5, look at verse number... 10. Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 10. He who loves money, the original language is more striking to me, it's the lover of money. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor will the lover of wealth be satisfied with wealth. If, if our heart's love affair with money sends us on a pursuit of wealth, we will never be satisfied because we will never have enough money and wealth, right? As rich as the billionaire Rockefeller was, he was blind to this. He was once asked the question, Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Asking this to a billionaire. How much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Bro, you a billionaire. Just a little bit more. 
He was blind to the fact that money is incapable of satisfying the hunger and thirst of the person who is devoted to it. It is senselessly futile, which is our definition of hevel. Money cannot fill the heart with satisfaction any more than a little pebble can fill the Grand Canyon. Money is incapable of, sat of, of satisfying the hunger and the thirst of the person who's devoted to it, as I said. There's this old school guy named George Herbert who has a poem called The Pulley, and he tells us why. Herbert's imagination takes us to the day when he, to the day when God created the first human, the first Adam, and bestowed, first or Adam, and bestowed on him the many blessings that he wanted to put and give to Adam, except one blessing, which was satisfaction, or in George Herbert's words, rest. Consider this poem: When God at first made man, having a, a glass of blessings standing by. Let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. In other words, let all the good things be concentrated in this, this, this new human. So strength first made a way. Then beauty flowed. Then wisdom, honor, and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. He stopped perceiving that alone of all of his treasure, rest or satisfaction in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, this satisfaction, he would adore his gifts instead of me. And rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest. He can have it all but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Let him be rich and weary. This is why rich people can turn around and commit suicide. Humans are rich with blessings and weary with dissatisfaction. Rich and unsatisfied until this restlessness finds its rest in God alone. I never tire of quoting Augustine here because my soul needs it on, the regular, on a regular basis. He said, you, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and restless is our heart. Restless is our heart until it comes to rest in you. Psalm 145 verse number 7 says, you open your hand, you satisfy, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. I mean, I know this morning that money was never meant to satisfy and therefore the lover of money will never be satisfied with money. Money is a wonderful tool in the hands of a faithful steward but a horrible master to those who love it. Jesus agrees with me on this point, you know. He said in the Gospels, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If someone decides to love and be devoted to and to serve this cruel master of money, 
then that person cannot, is not able to love, be devoted to, and serve our Heavenly Father. They will despise, actually, the one that their heart was made to rest in. The lover of money will come to the realization that the 20th century world-renowned poet, the notorious B.I.G., was true when he penned this phrase, more money, more problems. Mo is a superlative of more, Pastor Dan. Big, bigger, biggest. More, mo. Mo money, more problems. Consider this problem. More money, more people. Look at verse number 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? How many of you know that people show up where abundance is and will happily consume your goods, right? When, when something they want is within their reach, they will come. Here they come. In fact, our kids are a perfect example of this. Here our kids go playing and having a good time by themselves until daddy sits down with a plate of food. And as soon as daddy sits down with a plate of food, all of a sudden, there's three sets of eyes looking at my one plate. Goods increased, so did the people. This happens so often with the increase of money, wealth, and the acquisition of more possessions. One version says, the more that you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Everywhere from the government to your long-lost third cousin, who if you haven't seen in decades, come out of the woodwork to help you spend your increased goods. All the owner can do at times is to see his goods being consumed by others with his own eyes. His goods in somebody else's mouth and in somebody else's pocket. One person said it like this, the one who has wealth seldom has the opportunity to really enjoy its fruits. Consider another problem. More money, more sleepless nights. Look at verse number 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, how many of y'all have ever been in a scenario where you were really hungry and really tired at the same time? Anybody been there before? Really hungry and really tired at the same time. How many of y'all, by way of hands, have to eat before you go to sleep? Y'all are people after my own heart. That's it? So the rest of you all weird ones can actually go to sleep while you're hungry? Hmm, that's interesting. I might have to try that one day. <laughs> Apparently, this person can do the same thing that we see in this text, the one who is tired from labor, right? The person who labors hard can also go to sleep on an empty stomach because he's worked, she's worked so hard. There's something about hard work in the daytime that makes sleep at the nighttime sweet. The rich who love and pursue money may enjoy a full stomach, but that full stomach may keep them up at night with the indigestion of worries, concerns, and cares. Our text is bookended with this theme of satisfaction. At the end of our text, the preacher broadens his quest for satisfaction. 
he broadens it out to include all human appetite. So go with me to the end of our section today, chapter 6, verse number 7, and see it there. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. When was the last time that kind of hit home with you? Your appetites never say enough. They never say enough. You work hard to bring food to the table, and then tomorrow, guess what? You're hungry again. Every single Thanksgiving in the throes of your food comma, you vow to the Lord, I'll never eat again. And later that night, you're in the refrigerator talking about who, left, who ate all the leftovers. The appetite is never satisfied. And this doesn't just concern our appetite for food, right? Our appetites are also the things that our heart hungers for the most and the things that our heart believes that we must have in order to survive. Appetites for desires, for possessions, for acclaim, for recognition, for intimacy, for wealth, for knowledge, for love, for significance, for meaning, etc., 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 etc. Our appetites are insatiable, and guess what? They also are no respecter of persons. Look at verse number 8, chapter 6, verse number 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? The teacher has already told us in previous chapters that the wise person does have an advantage over the fool. But concerning our appetites, wisdom doesn't ultimately satisfy any more than foolishness. Look at verse number 8 again. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Well, he, this poor man, knows how to have a wise life, and yet still he has the same unconquerable appetites as the rich person does who doesn't know how to conduct his life in the same manner. Verse number 9 gives us a glimpse into where we are going. Verse number 9 says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What in the, what in the world does that mean? What does this mean? Here's another way of saying it. It is better to be content with what your eyes can see than for one's heart always to crave more. It's better to be content with what you have than for your eyes to always crave and crave and crave more. This craving is, a, is continually a futile, chasing-the-wind type of craving. So spoiler alert here, contentment is the key and is better than trying to satisfy our appetites. Under the sun, there is no gain, but above the sun, godliness with contentment is great gain. Before we consider that, let's think about our second heading, two reflections. Sometimes our fascination is captured by stories of people in wealth. Whether if it's the rag-to-riches story or the riches-to-rags story, a lot of lessons can be learned. I remember at one time reading a story from a former NBA player who ended up working at Starbucks because he blew $100 million. $100 million gone. And now he's, here's your latte, please. Here's your frappuccino, please. Gone. It's a cautionary tale. The preacher gives us two, sermons, two stories concerning people and wealth, and both of these stories he calls it an evil under the sun. Let's learn this lesson well. Look at verse number, let's go back to chapter 5. Look at verse number 13. 
chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother, mother's womb, and he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for, for his toll that he must carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Zoom in on that phrase, riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt because the owner was kept actually by his riches. He was a slave of his riches, and as a, resort, as a result, he greedily, greedily hoarded it up. It's clear to us, I think it's clear to everybody in here, that it's dangerous to just straight blow through money, right? That's, that's, that's clear to us. We should be as stewards of what we have so we shouldn't blow through it. But do we equally know how dangerous it is to hoard any of the wealth that the Lord gives at the same time? This isn't against saving money. Proverbs tells us that the person who gathers in the summer is prudent. Riches are hoarded and kept to our hurt if we place our trust in them and we stop being generous. Jesus' parable of the rich fool is a perfect example of hoarding. Remember this parable? He tells this story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he says, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this. He says, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Do you remember why Jesus told this parable? He set it up with these words, take care. And be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's, what, that's not what life is about. This man's story is not over. Not only did he greedily hoard his money to his own hurt, he ended up losing it all in a bad business venture. This is another problem that we have with this is another problem that those who are a lover and a pursuer of wealth may come across. More money today, more wings tomorrow. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. It says, do not wear yourself out to become rich, but be wise enough to restrain yourself. When you gaze upon riches, they're gone. For surely they make wings for themselves and they fly off into the sky like an eagle. Riches are here today, and it could be gone tomorrow. The tragedy continues in this reflection because this man was a father to a son. It was the father's responsibility to leave an inheritance for a son, and verse 14 tells us that he had nothing in his hand. In fact, this man died with nothing, and in death learned the universal lesson, lesson that we bring nothing into this world, and we can't take anything with us out of this world. Even life before death was a tragedy in this man's life. In his love, pursuit, his hoarding, and his loss, in, in, in the loss of his riches, the consequences of his life is littered with negativity. The text says he ate in darkness. 
Eating was an important social event in the preacher's time. Could this mean that this man ate in the darkness of social isolation? Instead of eating with families and friends, I, I wonder if he ate alone with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Now, of course, this is not the end of everyone who is rich, right? Remember, the preacher is talking about those who love and pursue money. Once the hope of their love is gone, it's a cautionary tale to see how their end is filled at times with hopelessness. The second reflection is also called an evil under the sun. In fact, the preacher says that it lays heavy on, man, on mankind, like a, like a heavy, wet blanket, it, it, a weighted down blanket, it, it weighs heavy on mankind. Look at, go back, let's flip over to chapter 6 again, look at verse number 2 for this second reflection. Chapter 6, verse number 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Martin Luther called these verses a, a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life, and yet does not have a good and happy life. This is hevel. This is senselessly futile. It's a grievous evil. Once again, for anyone who thinks I'm saying that wealth and possessions are a bad thing in and of themselves, notice that this verse says that they are gifts from God. Of all people, Christians who believe that their Heavenly Father is also a, a good gift-giving creator, of all people, we should not be Gnostics, right? We, we don't separate spiritual things as good and material things as bad. We, we know our Father to be good. We know our Father to be the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In the New Testament, it says every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If you have a measure of wealth in here this morning, right? if you have possessions and honor, I hope that you don't think that it was simply done due to the work of your hands. Right? They're gifts from God for us to enjoy to his glory. The evil in this story is that for whatever reason, God did not give this person power to enjoy the gifts he was blessed with. The preacher doesn't give us details of what this looked like, but he gives us a, a very hard comparison, a very difficult comparison. If you look at chapter 6, verse number 3, we see it. It says, if, if, a, fa if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that his days are many, in the New Testament, marks of a blessed life are many children a long life. So if this person has the markings of a blessed life, it says, if his soul is not satisfied with life good, life's good things, and he also has no burial, which is another mark of Old Testament blessing, the preacher says, I say that, he is, that a stillborn is better than he. Is he serious? This is a shocking comparison, and one not to use flippantly. Here in this room, many dear brothers and sisters in here have experienced the tragedy of a stillborn child. Is the preacher really saying that a stillborn child is better than someone who is discontent with life's good things? 
this is hard. And it's also okay to wrestle with the preacher here. And in wrestling with it, I want you to consider just a few things. In the mind of the preacher, discontentment is more serious than we realize. He considers the tragedy of a stillborn child to be better than to live a tragic life of discontentment. One person said it like this, it's better to have no experience of life than to have a joyless life. This means that this, this, that statement right there, that makes the hairs of my arms stand up in light of the discontentment that at time overtakes my own soul. Consider also his explanation for such a hard comparison. It's better for the stillborn even in the tragedy of a stillborn child, because the stillborn child, in essence, doesn't experience life underneath this Genesis 3 cursed world. You look at verse number 5. Moreover, it has not seen the son or known anything, has not known pain. The stillborn child has not known suffering or heartache or discouragement. Yet, the stillborn child finds rest rather than the one who has no joy. Once again, Jubilee, it's okay to wrestle with this. This is hard, and yet it preaches to us. Brothers and sisters who have walked through the tragedy of a stillborn know that your child is at rest. For all of us know that discontentment or not being satisfied in the good things the Lord has blessed us with is more serious than we realize. This brings us to our third heading, application. Remember where we have been so far. The warning is that the love and the pursuit of wealth will come up empty. The two reflections teach us about hoarding and discontentment. And now here's the, here's the application. Enjoy your heavenly Father's daily gifts. Enjoy them. Enjoy your heavenly Father's daily gifts. Look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his life and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is familiar territory to us already in Ecclesiastes. The preacher has given a similar call to enjoyment already in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Simply from the perspective of being under the sun, though, some people look at these calls of enjoyment as just simply carpe diem, seize the day. This is all you have. This is all you can expect. So since there's no, no gain to be found under the sun, just enjoy it while you can. But the above the sun perspective transforms and heightens the call to enjoyment. Now in Christ, all of us, in Christ, who is our all, how much more are we equipped by the Spirit? to find joy and contentment in our eating and in our drinking and in our toil to the glory of God. 
If the preacher was able to see what was good to do under the sun, all would we be able to see above the sun in Christ what's good to do in the ordinariness of our drinking, the ordinariness of our eating, and the ordinariness of getting up and doing your nine to five. Life above the sun transforms the dinner table, and it transforms the work desk, and transforms every mundane task under the sun and in between. How are we to see and handle any amount of wealth and possession that comes into our lives. How are we supposed to handle that? First and foremost, we give the credit to whom credit is due. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions. God has given you what you have. Are you wealthy in here today? Do you have possessions? Do you have good things? God has given that to you. The Apostle Paul asked a good question to the Corinthians that highlights this point. Why do you, why do you, you boast about, or what do you have that you did not receive? Think about your life, Jubilee. What, what do you have that you did not receive? And then he goes on to say, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? No, 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 Pastor, Pastor, you don't understand. I've worked for everything I have. My hands have brought all of this stuff that I have at this point. Hmm? Well, who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the breath in your lungs to work? Who sustained you through the night and woke you up in the morning to go to work? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory to God. Amen. First and foremost, if you have any wealth in your life, any blessings, any possessions that are treasured, God has been good to you in giving you these things. You know what that means, Jubilee? It means that we ought to give thanks for everything and always to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Every time you get into your car that works, you ought to give thanks. You might want to give thanks even if you get in the car and it don't work, right? Every time you walk into your house, you ought to give thanks. Every time food crosses your lips and a cool glass of a, of a delicious drink slips down your throat, we ought to give thanks. Every time that we stand in front of our clothes and decide which one of these shirts we're going to put on, how many of y'all know we ought to give thanks? Right? Would we be a people who loudly proclaim that what we have or not is not our own? It's been given to us as a product of our good Heavenly Father's hands. Jubilee, God has been good to us. I just gave you a place to shout amen right there. God has been good to us. And we ought to be a thankful people, amen? First and foremost, be thankful for the good things our Father gives to us daily. Notice what else God gives. He gives power to enjoy what he has blessed us with and power to accept what's given with contentment. He gives power to rejoice in all of our toil and power to fight the discontentment of wandering appetites that always wants more. He gives us power to subdue discontentment, which is the soil in which the love of money grows. This power is a gift from God. There's a reason why the preacher tells us so often to enjoy. It's because we have to remember to be content. So let me close with this question here. 
How does the Father give us power to enjoy and be content with his daily gifts and wealth and possessions? Well, the preacher doesn't answer that question for us here in the text, but I won't leave you out there like that. How does God enable us to enjoy his gifts? He satisfies us with himself through his son, Jesus. According to Colossians 2, Christ is the fullness, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we've been filled in him. Ephesians 1.23 says, tells us that Christ is the one who fills all in all. Ephesians 4.10 tells us that Christ who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, above all things, so that he may fill all things. Christ is the universal filler-upper, and wandering appetites meet their match in him. Only Christ can satisfy the human heart. Only Christ can bring us to the Father who gives us the power to enjoy his gifts because we enjoy him more. We are the freest people on the whole planet. We're free to not look for wealth, possessions, and good gifts to give us what we so satisfyingly have in God through Christ. We're free to enjoy gifts because we've not, we have not given our heart to something less than our Father through Christ. In other words, until Christ is enough for you, Jubilee, nothing else will ever be. But as Christ becomes enough, you will find yourself enrolled in Jesus' class of contentment. 101. Paul was a student in this class in Philippians 4. You know what his lesson was? His lesson was this. It was to learn how to be content in whatever situation he found himself in. He learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. Wouldn't that be a wonderful lesson to learn? The secret, the secret of facing plenty and the secret of placing abundance, right? It's in this context of contentment that he says that we can do all things we can face plenty in abundance through Christ who strengthens us. So if I had to insert a Heat Academy lesson for this morning, I'd insert it here. Under the sun, our appetites endlessly wander. Above the sun, our appetites are endlessly satisfied. It is only this way that we enjoy our Father's gifts and wealth and possessions. So Jubilee, enjoy your Heavenly Father's gifts as one satisfied in Christ. My job as a pastor, our job as a pastor is to keep the living, speaking, acting Jesus front and center in your lives. Are you struggling with discontentment this morning? Is it hard to enjoy God's gifts in your life? Do you love, pursue, or keep wealth to your own hurt? In the words of Richard Baxter, Christ is fit to be looked on today. He's fit. Why do you dwell upon your, own, your unworthiness and sin you might feel today? Raise up your mind. Christ is an object worth beholding and admiring, especially of a distressed soul. Look to Christ. That's all I got. Look to Christ. I got more, but time is done. Look to Christ. Look to him. Look to him. Look to him and fight discontentment. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that Christ will loom large in our heart. I pray, Father, that you would take what I said imperfectly and by your spirit preach a message to my brothers' and sisters' hearts to tooth and nail fight discontentment. And with everything in them, look to Christ as their treasure and then go out and enjoy the good things that you've given us. So be with us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Julie, why don't you stand to your feet?
My last illustration here was to take from a great show called The DuckTales with Scrooge McDuck. I mean, I know who Scrooge McDuck is. Remember when Scrooge McDuck used to just jump into his money bin of riches? Right? It's pretty cool, wasn't it? Y'all, we have an unsearchable treasure trove in the riches of Christ. This week, by God's grace as you go, out back into the world to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors near far, would you dive deeply into the treasure trove of Christ and be satisfied? And in being satisfied, show the world how you can enjoy the many blessings that God has given you. Do this in Jesus' name. Greet one another. Have a good rest of the day. Amen.